I posting this because I think it's helpful or because I just think it's funny or whatever? Or am I posting this because like I want people to think about me? Do I need people to think about me? People have said social media is neutral and we're just sinners using social media and that's why it's broken. No, no, no. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Hey, Brad, how are you doing today? Man, I'm doing good. Good. Hey, who are we talking to today? Yeah, we're talking to Chris Martin. Chris is a friend. He's also the content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. He has written two books 13 months apart because, you know, he's a machine like that. But it, both of them and his Substack account, Terms of Service, all of this is about social media and the way that social media forms and shapes us. And so his first book, Terms of Service, came out in February 22. And by the time you're listening to this, his newest book, The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead, it will be released and available at all booksellers. Yeah, it's going to be super relevant to what we're talking about in terms of remapping the culture and moving forward. So I hope you all enjoy it. All right. Welcome back to Post Everything. We're here with, I think we, we're a friend of the pod, even though at the time of this recording, the pod has not technically launched yet. But Chris, you and I, we've collaborated on an article with the Gospel Coalition, and we're having you on because you just wrote a, a pretty phenomenal book about social media. And so John is going to kind of set us up to really dive into that directly. Yeah. So Chris, it's great to have you on. We're excited about your book. Just the title and the cover catches your attention. The book is entitled The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead. Now, that sounds kind of dire, but why did you write this? Why is this book needed? Good question. I asked myself this question many times when I was writing this book. Not really. This book was actually super easy to write in a lot of ways. So first, to your thing on the title, thank you. What's funny about that is for both of the books on social media that I've written, the titles, I just like, you know, I don't like having nothing to put in the like book proposal title and I need to name the file something. So I just came up with goofy titles. Terms of service was a play on my newsletter and it's, you know, it's kind of a double entendre, if you will, in terms of what's the terms of our service to social media. Nobody ever mm. reads the terms of service. And I was kind of surprised the publisher took that one, but they did. And then with the wolf in their pockets, I had used that kind of metaphor as I wrote the initial proposal and introduction, the first draft of the introduction. And I thought it was a good image. So I just named the file that for when I was proposing the book and was like, here's a title. And I mean, look, I work in publishing. I help title books as part of my job. So I kind of know what can make a good title and what can't. And I knew if this was a proposed title, it's a bit on the cute end as far as what you want in a title. Mm. So I was like, I doubt this will stick, but it's not a bad starting point. And they decided to keep it. I was not involved in the titling of my own book other than, hey, do you think this is fine if we keep it? And so I was like, yeah, but I'm glad you like it. I think that image, even though I think I only use it once or twice in the book, it's not like it's used often. I think it communicates exactly the kind of the purpose is like we're, whether you're a parent or a pastor or even a lay church leader, you're trying to shepherd people and 
you're trying to shepherd sheep and keep them from wolves, but they might be carrying a little wolf around in their pocket at all times. I think as far as that metaphor goes, you know, it's not good to extend metaphors further than they ought to be. I think we would all agree. And that is, <laughs> that is as about as far as that metaphor goes. But why did I need to write the book? When I wrote Terms of Service, that book was kind of what I call it a mirror book. It was kind of, hey, what's you, the reader? What is your relationship with social media? And what should you do about that? What can you do about that? And a lot of people don't like to look at themselves in that kind of situation. They don't like to examine their problems, which is probably why that book hasn't sold super well in part. And in fact, I wrote that book in such a way that it could be helpful to non-Christian audiences. Like my Christian worldview is apparent, but I'm not citing scripture right and left and that kind of thing. So I kind of intentionally wrote that book very broadly. And it was loosely practical. It was probably 20 or 30% practical, but it was more like it was a book to help people think differently rather than do something differently, though that was a part of it. This book, as I talked to a lot of people in the writing of Terms and shortly after Terms was released just last year, the most common feedback I got was from pastors or church leaders or parents who appreciated the book but were longing for a more practical resource, like a more – a tool – to help them know how to best lead and disciple people in their churches or their kids who they saw being formed by social media Mm. and terms. Like if you tried hard, you could use my last book to do that. But I thought a more direct resource was merited Mm. of like, this is a tool really like terms of service is a book about social media. This is a leadership and discipleship book in the context of a culture being defined by social media. So really, this is more of a leadership discipleship book than it is a social media book. So really, like the fact that those two books share a common theme in social media is about the only similarity they have. Like Wolf is just written so much differently. It's written for a very specific audience, the Christian leader, whether that's a vocational pastor or a parent. I think there could be a parenting specific book written in this vein. I'm just, I'm not a parent of a teenager. I don't feel quite qualified to do that. I mean, I've been leading in student ministry since I was a high schooler. So I do know that world a lot. I'm still leading in our student ministry at church, but I'm not a parent. And that's a very different relationship. And so I think an even further resource on that and other people have done that, but I think more could be done in that space. So when I heard all this feedback of, Hey, we could really use a hyper practical resource I mean, almost as soon as I turned the first draft of Terms of Service in, in like late 2021, mid 2021, I began working on a preliminary draft of this. And so as I got the feedback from Terms, once it was published last year, it was like, yeah, I definitely should proceed. And so my agent and I worked on the proposal and figured out that this was one of the biggest needs of the church. And it's only been affirmed, like, I think I talked to two dozen or more pastors and lay church leaders as I wrote this book, really just like I wanted constant feedback because even though I am one myself, I lead a community group, I lead in our student ministry, and I've been in student ministry for over a decade. I know a lot of the problems and I know that this is a felt need, but I only know my perspective. And so I wanted to talk to pastors on the West Coast, pastors in the South, pastors in the Northeast. So I got a lot of different perspectives, was sending out questionnaires and asking for feedback constantly, was on like a dozen Zoom calls and just like asking for input from people. So that was very helpful. And that just throughout the whole process reinforced in my mind the need for a resource like this. And so really – The first book was like, I need to write this book and I hope it helps people. This is much more of a response to a need that I was hearing directly from people. So that's kind of, that's kind of why. 
Yeah, yeah. I think what's interesting, what I appreciate about the book is I think if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, maybe I don't have these questions about social media. Social media affects all of us, whether we're on it or not. The world is highly influenced by social media. And so even just to think about culture from a standpoint of how people are being affected by you know, the phone in their pocket, I think is really helpful. We've been talking about life in a liminal age. And Brad, you've mentioned a lot about diminished capacity. What connections are you making, Brad, as you think about that? Like what questions could we ask Chris about that? Yeah. In this previous episode that John's referring to, we really talked about the experience of living in a liminal age. And in that, the kind of emotional, relational drain that feels like we never get more than like a half a tank anymore. It feels like our decision-making capacity and our agency feels exhausted before we even get through half the day. And then as well as, I mean, as a writer, I'm sure you can relate to this, but it's been a long time, I think, since most people have not had like just a flood of everything coming at them that's been held back because of our busyness. I think I have some theories and some ideas of how social media may be contributing to that, that diminished capacity. But as the expert, that's more than just our gut and an intuition, right? What are the ways that we can understand, you said earlier, how social media is forming us, maybe even counterforming us from where our efforts and our conscious efforts are directed toward? Yeah, I've said, and I think I say this in the book, and it's kind of the premise of the book is that social media is the chief discipler of our age. And mm. I'll fight anybody on that. And I don't mean to, <laughs> like, I'm not trying to be belligerent, but like, I strongly believe that in the same way that I strongly believe the internet is more substantive than the printing press. And I've gotten a lot of disagreement on that over oh, the years. Oh, Chris, I, no, no, no. Can we, we need to pause here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Like I literally, I told John and before we started recording this, that John, I'm just letting you know, if you bring up the printing press as an analogy, again, I'm going to scream. <laughs> yeah. And I hate that because that is an effect and a change of quantity, not of yeah. quality. And social media yeah. is quality and quantity both. So please, yeah, please expand on that because this is a huge pet peeve of mine. <laughs> yeah. No, the printing press pales in comparison to the influence of the internet in part because of the the two-way nature of the internet. Mm, yeah. The printing press made it available for people to read books and some people to be able to publish books or, or like be heard who had never been heard before. I think the printing press was most significant in its ability for people to consume information. Yeah, okay. The internet is significant not only that it's created an ability for people to consume an insane, unhealthy irresponsible amount of information, but it's also put a printing press in everybody's pocket as well, which the printing yeah. press didn't do. Mm -hmm. It did not make everybody a publisher. The internet made everybody a publisher and a consumer because the internet is the printing press at the speed of light. Also, you're talking about speed. The printing press made a lot of things available for a lot of people. It was a tremendous invention and shaped culture in some dramatic ways. And significantly led to, you know, a 300-year religious war to follow it. So, like, right. no worries, right? right? <laughs> yeah, but but imagine if, you know, if you take the printing press and deliver it at the speed of light. Yeah. Which one is more powerful? Well, the printing press at the speed of light, of course. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean it's better. Don't hear me saying it's better. But do hear me saying it's more influential and substantive in terms of, like, I think – yeah, the war that followed the printing press will pale in comparison to whatever we have coming our way, you know, shortly. Oh, great. 
Well, so then you have to settle debate. Yeah. You know, if you're talking about the substantiveness of the internet. The follow-up question is, is Twitter real life or not? What's the experts say? It depends on what you mean by real life, because this, <laughs> this question can be interpreted in two different ways. Yes. Is Twitter representative of what culture thinks? No. In that way, it's not real life. Because just look at the small percentage of Americans who use Twitter. It's under 20% now, I think. Mm. So in that way, is it representative of – like is Twitter a minority view? Whatever you think Twitter as a hive mind thinks. Yes, it is a minority view and should not be interpreted as this is what everyone's saying. No, it's like what less than a quarter of people are saying. Even if everybody on Twitter was saying the same thing, it would yeah. be what less yeah, than yeah. a quarter of people are saying. Is Twitter real life? In that if you cuss out your friend on Twitter, was it real? Yeah. What you do on Twitter is real life. But a lot of people don't think that. Like a lot of people <laughs> think that what I do on Twitter is not real or on <laughs> social media in general. There's a story of this in the book where I talked with a pastor who a woman in his church was posting on Facebook about some really difficult things she was going through. And it wasn't anything she had done wrong. Like she was not sinning in her posting of what she was saying, but she was just like, I'm going through some really hard stuff da, 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 da. a minister in the church. I think it was maybe like a women's minister reached out to the woman and said, Hey, is there anything we can do to help you come alongside you? And the woman responded and said, I'm looking for assistance from my Facebook friends, not my real life friends. What happens on Facebook is not the matter of the church. Again, she wasn't being called out for anything. Right. They were running to her aid. Yeah. Yeah. She wasn't so, ashamed of anything. She just yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. And so she sees Facebook is not real life. Yeah. Uh, and so Twitter, to your kind of cheeky question, like Twitter <laughs> is not real life in that it is not representative of the whole. It is real life in that what we do there is no less real than what we do off of there. Well, yeah. and it shapes perception of what real life is. Totally. Right. Yeah. Totally. Right. Yeah. So Brad's coined this term, algorithmic epistemology. And so we're trying to figure out how does social media, how does the internet change our perception of reality? I was telling Brad a funny story. I was on Facebook and I was like watching videos and I happened to see this video of a horse on a farm getting an abscess dealt with by like a veterinarian. It was disgusting. Don't look it up. But I just like got sucked in. <laughs> and I kind of watched it. I was like, I got to see how this works. Well, now guess what shows up in my feed? It's all these yep. horses and cows uh, having, you know, surgery in their abscess. And I can't get rid of it now. But I mean, that's kind of a humorous. God. And not only that, but I'm like, we got to do something about these horses, man. They're all suffering, you know? So it, John it, just started the new, uh, like, American Horse Abscess Foundation. That's right. <laughs> but it's like, so it's, it, you know, that's a funny example. But you start thinking about not just animals, but like you start thinking about politics. You start thinking about movements. You start thinking about conflict. How is social media changing our perception of reality of like what the problems are, what the stories are, what the frequency of these events are that are happening. How would you comment into that? Yeah. Uh, before I get into that, I want to finish answering the question from before where social media is shaping us and shaping culture. Mm. Tons of stats came out in 2022, just various institutions that regularly do like annual social media research. And all of them, I can't cite them all off the top of my head, but they were all kind of within 10 or 12 minutes of each other showing that the average U.S. adult spends two and a half hours a day on social media. And if you think about what in your day do you do for more than two and a half hours, like an average day, you sleep and you work. 
or if you're a student, you sleep and you go to school. There's nothing else you regularly do for more than two and a half hours a day. Yeah, you might watch a movie that's two and a half hours long or you know, you might go, if you're a student, participate in a football game that's two and a half hours long or whatever. But as an adult, there's nothing you're doing for more than two and a half hours. You might play with your kids for more than that time, but you're doing five different things when you're doing that. Yeah. And so if you're doing something for two and a half hours a day, a la using social media, that's not phone use, by the way, that's social media use. So that's a subset of phone use. If the average American adult is using social media for two and a half hours a day, that is the chief discipler. And that's why I say I can stand, I'll fight anybody on that. Find me anything somebody's doing for that period of time that's even close on a regular basis. There's nothing. And so anyway, that's the biggest reason for that. On the question on reality, right? Is that a question of like, how do you, like the, the algorithmic epistemology of like how it's shaping? Yeah, because if your newsfeed, just to even connect that with what you just said, a yeah. newsfeed is... You know, it's the social media equivalent of a church bulletin. When you go in, yeah. you get, you know, if it's printed out, it is a liturgy. It is a digital liturgy. And so there's something behind that that is informing that, a definition of what is true, an epistemology, that is algorithmically informed. Yeah. So the best way I've come to say this over the years, and I don't remember where I first said it, I don't know if it was the book last time or, or just newsletter, but social media is designed to deliver us deeper into what we want, not deliver us from what we want. Oh, and as Christians, that's what should trouble us the most. Because oh. if you just break it down, let's pick on Facebook for a second. They're the biggest and they're the easiest to use as an example because their algorithm has always been so central. I mean, since 2012 or whenever they first introduced the newsfeed algorithm, nine, I forget. Facebook exists to make money. Nothing wrong with that. That's their right. How do they make money? They make money by keeping people on Facebook. The way they keep people on Facebook is to deliver them content that makes them feel something. So a lot of people over the years have wrongly said, myself included, well, Facebook just wants to make you happy. No, no, no. <clears throat> no, they don't care about that. <clears throat> they just want you to make you feel something. In fact, there have been studies that have been published by the Wall Street Journal and other publications over the years that have shown that they're actually more interested in making you angry because anger motivates people to scroll longer than happiness. Mm -hmm. So their algorithm has engineered showing you content that's more controversial and inflammatory in your eyes. Like if you're a Democrat, you're more likely to see inflammatory content from the right. And if you're on the right, you're more likely to see inflammatory content on the left than you are things that you simply agree with because mm -hmm. anger motivates scrolling more than happiness does or you know, satisfaction. And so the social media platforms exist for the good of themselves, not for the good of the user. We see this no more than in how teens are being affected by social media, which is a whole other conversation that I have quite frequently with youth ministries and, and parents and such. But social media platforms are out for their own good. And what's great for them, this is why it's such a good business model, is it's incredibly lucrative to deliver people more deeply into what they want and what they love rather than deliver them from what they want and what they love. And so, yeah, our algorithms, these various strings of mathematical equations that are designed to figure out what we love and what we like, or at least what interests us, whether for good or for bad, what makes us feel something, those things come to shape who we are. Over the years, people have tried to say, foolishly, myself included, so I'm not exempt from this. I have since reformed my mind on this. People have said social media is neutral and we're just sinners using social media and that's why it's broken. No, no, no. Social media is malevolent. Mm. It is bent toward bad. It's not neutral and we just mm. use it bad. There's no better evidence for this 
then Facebook put its finger on the scale toward content that makes people angry. It's not neutral. It is weighted certain ways where frowny faces and angry emojis are worth more than smiley faces are. Like it just comes down to that. Mm. And these platforms, again, like I said before, if you ask any parent, do you feel like social media platforms are helping you in your fight to help your kids not become addicted to these things? Or do you feel like you're fighting with social media platforms to protect your children? It's a great question. They will tell you that they're fighting with these platforms rather than joining arms with them. And so there's no question that these platforms are bent toward brokenness, like literally in their code and in their mathematics at the center. Yeah. For us, the reason I still use social media and don't- Yeah, that was my next question. The reason is, is I do think it can be used effectively. I mean, this is just life. You have to be intentional. Nobody stumbles into a right relationship with social media. You have to be careful. You have to work at it. There's a reason I'm not logged into Twitter on my phone. Because when I'm logged into Twitter on my phone, I act foolish. Because I can just post whatever I want at any time. I have intentionally, me, I write books on social media. I put barriers between mm. myself. I make it like a five-step process to log into Twitter on my phone to make it so that I have to think, is this really worth me posting this thought that's in my head right now? Is this really worth it? Oh, dang it. I got to get my verification code texting me again. Okay, fine. Like I have to go through these like kind of safety locks, these like air locks, you know, if you think of like Star Wars <laughs> or whatever, where it's like I have to go through these various processes to make it hard so like those are the kinds of things you have to do. You don't stumble into having a right relationship with social media. You have to try. I think it can be done, which is why I don't say delete your accounts. Like I think it can be done. I think social media can be used for good and I try very hard to do that. It can be fun too. There's nothing wrong with it being fun, but you have to try. You can't stumble into it. And I think that's where a lot of us go astray is we just kind of think like, well, I'm a pretty good person and you know, I'm not going to use it to do anything super nefarious. And then you just kind of hope it works out and that's where you can all get in trouble. Well, that's where it's actually really misleading too, right? Because it's not just an individual addiction. It's also a social networked addiction. You know, Jonathan Haidt has done an incredible amount of research and published data around this for teen girls, especially. But I remember reading something he wrote recently about this saying that like, you will not actually experience an increase in mental health if your teenage daughter gets off social media because- as she gets off of social media, she's also losing the yep. social support system and the connection, being involved and, and being part of something outside of yourself. Like you lose that. And so the only real way to experience that mental health increase is you and all of your friends get off at the same time too. And it's like, wow. well, no wonder it's impossible. And I remember to your point about how this forms and shapes us. God, I remember in early 2020, which I was only on Facebook up to this point. I was not on Twitter. And I remember getting on Twitter as a church planter of a church that's only three and a half years old at that point and thinking like, oh, this is where it's all coming from. All of the weird kind of questions or ways sometimes people would hear me as their pastor, what they saw as a problem in our area or our community or our church, all of that. I was like, there are these caricature versions of that on Twitter I'm seeing. I wish I had gotten on to Twitter sooner in some sense, because I would have better understood the source of the problems my people were bringing to me. Yeah. And so it's stunning how much, not just, like you said, this book is written especially for leaders too. So like it can shape how a leader understands what the problem is and where the need is. 
but it also shapes the people you're leading, how they understand the problem and the need to. And so it is this two-way street that combined is way more than one plus one equals two. It's like one plus one equals 50. Yeah. And that's why I think like I've always advocated there's some wisdom for pastors and church leaders having a presence online to the extent that you can do it effectively and responsibly, even if you never post, just like having a listening ear and having your finger on, you know, I think it's more important for a local church pastor, for instance, to be sure he's connected and peering into the online lives of his congregants far more than like what's going on in broader evangelicalism. That's more hobby horse than relevant to what he's doing in his local ministry. Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying like pastors need to go out and accept every friend request from every person in their church. I think that can be unhelpful as well in a lot of ways. But I think it is wise to some extent to have an idea of like, what are these people swimming in? What are they dealing with? And I always want the leader, whether it's a community group leader or a pastor or whatever, to maintain their own health, put your own oxygen mask on first. Like don't, don't put yourself in an unhealthy situation just to have an ear to the ground of what your people are swimming in. But if you can do it in a healthy way and have whatever safeguards you need that are based on your personal use, it is helpful in that regard. Mm. And back to your point on teens, I know this isn't a youth ministry thing, but I just want to say, because I do talk, especially this time around, I'm talking to a lot of youth ministry people. I want to say two things on this one. I think one of the biggest problems with our generally Christians relationship with social media and local church handling of congregants relationship with social media is that we've relegated the matter of social media to the youth room. And I think that's a huge problem. Meaning Mm, say more about that. Yeah. I get more interview requests from youth ministries about the topic of social media than I do from other pastors. I've spoken at five times the number of youth ministry leader events than I have at a local church for everybody. People think this is a young person problem still, as though it's 2006. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. They're like, what about these teens and TikTok? I'm like, what about your boomers and Facebook? Oh, well, (laughs) ah, mm." I'm like, you think the boomers on Facebook aren't being influenced anymore by that than your teens are by TikTok? And so people are still relegating this topic. Oh, that's a young person problem. Mm -mm. Now, it is, let's be clear, it is a young person problem. And, And they're being shaped in a way that, you know, they're not fully formed and they're forming their identities. It's they do have some unique challenges as teens. But I think part of the reason this book is still so needed and this topic is still not resolved is because we've relegated it to the, ah, that's a young person problem. Oh, these kids Mm. in their phones, that two and a half hours a day was us adults, which means only the seniors in your youth group would be included in that study. So it's not just like, oh, yeah, these 15-year-olds are spending two and a half hours a day. They might be spending three hours a day, but I don't know. We don't have data on that. But what I do know is that your adults, the people in your seniors ministry, the people in your marrieds ministry, they're spending two and a half hours a day on social media on average, not just the kids in your youth ministry. Secondly, another quick youth point if anyone listening is in that space. Definitely. The most common question I get is when should my kid get social media? I get that question in our student ministry at church. I get the question when I go to these student ministry events. I get that question in my inbox once a week, if not twice a month, something like that. I get it regularly. And I think this goes back to what you were saying. The the reason I thought of this is the Jonathan Haidt thing you're talking about is every time I answer that, I think some parents or youth ministry leaders think I'm hedging or punting, but it's true. I always say there's no right answer to that question because it's a matter of which set of problems do you want to deal with? Do you want to deal with the problems of giving your kids social media and having to respond to 
did you send this? Did you view this? Uh, did you, you know, that's one set yeah. of problems, which that's the one most people are afraid of, right? Like they don't want their kid getting involved in porn and all this other stuff, which is a understandable. Like, yeah, that's a real yeah. set of problems. But what a lot of parents I think don't realize is the more sneaky set of problems that comes with not giving your kids social media. I think a lot of parents don't understand that if you decide, make the wise decision to not give your kids social media, your 15 year old, like you say, no, 15 year old, you can't have Snapchat. You're going to have that 15 year old coming and saying, mom, my friends are all making fun of me because I don't have Snapchat. They're talking about all these inside jokes at the lunch table. I don't know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm ostracized socially because I'm not in these platforms. And so as a parent, you can say, tough luck, kid, get new friends. But like, come on, if you're the parent of a teenager, you know, it's not quite that easy. And so I think as a parent, if you're thinking, or even if you speak into this as a youth ministry leader, I don't see a right or wrong per se. Now, I think I know it like I would do and what I maybe advise people do, but it comes down to which set of problems would you rather deal with? A kid who gets exposed to stuff that you don't think he or she should be exposed to, and you have to deal with that. Or do you want to deal with my kid gets ostracized and bullied because they don't have an account on Instagram? Pick your poison, frankly. Yeah, and part of the principle that you're operating off of is a good one, which is like, it's kind of like the, you know, the conversation about alcohol, right? Do you want it to be this like mysterious, cool thing that as soon as they go to college, they just go headlong into it. And because you haven't actually prepared them to understand like what it is that they're going to be offered and, you know, tempted with, or do you kind of take the mystery away from it? And while they're still in your home, do you have the opportunity to like help them understand and see what's going on, but where that's different, maybe we can use this as a launch pad into this conversation around identity because it's not just forming and shaping our perception of reality. It's also forming and shaping our perception of ourselves because that's how yes. they want us to use it, right? right? You know, Chris, we co-authored an article with the Gospel Coalition on social media and how it erodes trust in institutions. But one of the kind of biblical analogies that fit almost scarily well is the Tower of Babel. Because when it says in Genesis 11 that the people wanted to build a tower that reaches up to the heavens, it's not necessarily the height that was the problem. It was actually the motivation, right? Mm -hmm. So that we can make a great name for ourselves. It is a source of dignity, value, and worth. That's what your name is, right? Your identity, who you are. And social media comes in with this, yes, algorithmic epistemology and a liturgy, and it's shaping us to be, to be pursuing an identity through performance in some way, right? And so that makes the whole alcohol analogy I just used completely irrelevant, but can you talk about what is the relationship with that? I'm not just connecting random dots here using a, a biblical analogy. There's something really to that and how it affects and shapes our identity. Yeah. The biggest thing I see is, and I talk about this, I think a little bit in the book, is this sort of main character syndrome where at the heart of pride, really at the heart of pride is the idea that we are God, right? That's at the heart of pride is that we're worshiping ourselves. Nobody has to tell me what to do. I'm right or, or whatever. But as it pertains to how I see that playing out practically in life, most people don't walk around like literally thinking they're God, you know, like, <laughs> but how that like in a more practical sense plays out is people walk around thinking I'm the main character and everybody else is a supporting actor in the movie that is my life. That's just natural. David Foster Wallace talks a lot about this in This Is Water, his speech at Kenyon College that was turned into mm. the book. And I think I mentioned him in the book as well about how it's just natural you only see life from your perspective. Your life is a first-person video game. You're only seeing from your eyes. 
everybody else is an NPC, a supporting actor that's just around you, supporting you, reacting to what you do. That in sin and brokenness, it's just easy. We're not even talking about social. It was easy to do this in the 80s. Sure. This has nothing to do with the internet. It's just easy to do that, to become a sort of closeted narcissist, if you will, where (laughs) you don't think you're better than everybody else. It's just like you only see life from your perspective. So naturally, it feels like everybody else is just second fiddle to you. You're talking about this. Reminds me of this quote from Edward Wilson, where he says that the real problem of humanity is the following. We have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Yeah. Yeah. And social media only makes that that much worse. You can create entire TV channels to like use an old technology to describe a current one. You can create (laughs) endless free TV channels in which you are the main character and every show is about you. Come on. Social media just amplifies the self-centeredness that is at the heart of our sinfulness and our broken hearts and minds. And so I think that's where, again, I come back to, does it always do this? Well, no, but it does it if we don't pay attention to it. There are all kinds of ways that I think that you could fight back against this, but like this is why I have made it harder for myself to post in a sense, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. the more... I see social media as a means of consuming information rather than communicating information, the less I feel like it's about me. Yeah. So again, we could talk about a hundred ways to try to push back against this idea, but yes, back to your point, social media is designed to help us form our identities in some sense. And I think we should do everything we can to not let it form our identities. Or I think even more suspect is how we use it to force our identities on other people and make make ourselves seem like we should be more important in other people's lives to hoist mm. our characters and our lives into others as though like you should care about me you should care about me i i think that's a common kind of saying that we say without saying it just in creating content i've really had to reckon with this over the years not only because i don't want to be a hypocrite but also just because i i see it in myself of like am i posting this because i think it's helpful or because I just think it's funny or whatever, or am I posting this because like I want people to think about me? Do I need people to think about me? Or can I just be content mm. with people not knowing I exist? Am I okay with people not thinking about me? Anyway, I can keep going. No, I love that. I mean, even thinking about like, just to label this not as intention, but incentive, right? Because we're rarely actually aware of incentives. We're always aware of our intentions. And what we're talking about here is incentives. And when you put a like button on something, that alone is creating an incentive structure that kind of forces you to pose in a way that gets that dopamine kick from having somebody like what you say. And to the degree that when you then encounter somebody who is not liking what you say in the moment, in person, in real life, it feels, I mean, nobody... Is going to be like, yeah, that's what I live for. No, but because we've been conditioned by those incentives, it feels not just difficult or hard. It actually feels personally offensive and morally wrong. Like something is being done to us, like we didn't opt into, but that's actually the norm or used to be pre-social media. And so like understanding those incentives, I think is, is just so important. And I mean, like you said, in describing your terms of service in your first book, holding up that mirror is really uncomfortable, but we have to look at that because what makes that mirror analogy so apt 
is that it is reflecting our identity back to us. And if that mirror is distorted, we will be distorted in how we perceive ourselves and how we expect other people to react to us accordingly. It's unavoidable. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate that. Sure. Another thing I appreciate, Chris, about your book is a lot of your chapter headings are ways to think about beautiful, flourishing living in the midst of social media. So you talk about like peace and humility and resisting cynicism. Mm -hmm. And Brad and I are interested as we talk about living in a liminal age of how do we not just survive with all the cultural changes or survive in the midst of social media, but how do we actually thrive? And I was wondering if you could talk about some of those directional pushes you have for the reader, like, hey, head in this direction as a way to thrive in the midst of social media. If you could share just those things, that would, I think, be encouraging to some of our listeners. Yeah, I think the biggest thing I think of here, and like I'm talking and, and writing, frankly, in these chapters, a lot from personal experience. Yeah. What I've found, you know, I mean, I, I was born in 1990. My dad worked for IBM. So we had the internet and computers in my house from a very early stage. I was on MySpace when I was in sixth or seventh grade and, you know, all of that. MySpace. Oh, I miss Tom so much. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I was blogging in eighth grade on LiveJournal and Zanga. Oh, Zanga. Yeah, dude. I've been swimming in this stuff virtually my whole life. Like, I was just talking with somebody earlier today. I'm kind of, me and others like me, are kind of like first wave social, like real true social media natives in a sense that like I was using MySpace when it was intended for people who are my age. And then same with Facebook. And like I've kind of run the gamut from the start. You know, I didn't get on Facebook when I was 20. MySpace didn't come out when I was 18. Like I was kind of in the bullseye of all of these platforms as I aged up. And what I found over the course of my life, both personally and professionally, because my entire professional career is wrapped up in creating content on the internet for Christian institutions, you know, for the good of serving people um, and ministering to people through online content. What I found is, going back to what I said earlier, you have to try. And mm. that's why we grappled a lot with how, you know, as we were forming this book with my editors of like, what are the chapter titles? And initially, I wanted them to all be kind of the negative side of what turned out to be the positive. So like the chapter titles are like mm -hmm. dethrone entertainment, recover purpose, build friendships, reorder priorities. I was advocating for what the negative sides of those. I probably still yeah. have my initial table of content somewhere, but it was like entertainment rules above everything. We don't know what our purpose is. We huh. don't have real friends. But we ended up going with the more positive spin because we wanted to communicate the sort of hopefulness, which I was against at first, but ultimately really appreciate. And I think without getting into the particulars of every chapter, what the purpose is in communicating it and thinking about it this way is it's not going to just happen. You have to try. You must, you need some Holy Spirit involved real effort here. You have to dethrone entertainment. It will not just be dethroned by itself. You have to try. Your purpose isn't just going to fall on your head. You want to have real friends? Put your phone down or deactivate your Twitter and go to a coffee shop. You got to do stuff. You want to figure out like, oh man, I, I want to be a writer. I want to write a book or I'd really love to write some fiction. Then like 
Lock yourself out of Twitter, download a writing app, and make yourself do it. Stop targeting us, Chris. Stop. Yeah, I, I'm very much in my personality, <laughs> and this is good and bad. I have vision. I have big picture. But I'm very much a, like, just go do the dang thing. I've always had my wife and I talk about this a lot. Don't let things happen to you. Go do stuff. If you want something to happen, you have to do it. I lead in student ministry and with my boys that I disciple there, you know, we'll talk about, Hey, are you guys reading your Bible? You making time for it? Ah, you know, I got wrestling. I got football. Like I got my job. I don't really have time. Like, no, 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 no. You make time for what you want to have time for period. So make time to do what you want to do. What I'm trying to do throughout these chapters, especially in how they're communicated is like, if you want to rest your relationship or more specifically for this book, you want to lead people to have a better relationship with social media is it's going to take some actual effort mm. and you're, you're going to have to change things and work. It's going to take some hard work. And I think we ought to realize that we can't let social media happen to us because it will, we have to happen to social media. Mm. And if we just receive and just consume, we're going to find ourselves sideways real quick and the purpose of how this is laid out and how the chapters are titled and designed is here's the situation. Here's what scripture has to say about the situation. And here's what we can practically do. I mean, gosh, in the build friendships chapter, I'm literally advocating for a church coffee hour again. <laughs> like a lot of churches don't have coffee hour. Anymore. My wife grew up in the Greek Orthodox church. And when we were first starting a date, we would go to some church events at the Greek Orthodox church that would take place on Sunday morning. And it was my first time being in an environment. Like I never went to a Catholic church or, or any place where they're swinging incense. Right. So mm -hmm. we go to the Greek Orthodox church and they're like, Oh, this is coffee hour. I'm like, man, what's this? You know, I grew up in a very typical non-denominational evangelical church where we did not have coffee hour. And I'm like, this is, this is great. It's awesome. You know, it was like in a dank church basement and it was fantastic. <laughs> it's like, I think a lot of people think of those times as like cringy nineties, you know, Baptist stuff or whatever. I don't know. I don't know who it's associated with, but a lot of people think of like old school. I'm like, bring back the church coffee hour, force people into conversation with one another in between the things that they're at church for. I want to advocate for like, if you want to live a good life. And by that, I mean like a life that you enjoy, not just like a, a moral upright life. If you want to live a good life in the age of social media, and you find yourself using it like anybody else, not like addicted where you're spending six hours a day, but you're using it the average of two and a half hours a day. You're going to have to try and you're going to have to do yeah. things like I've done, which is like put six barriers between me and tweeting something or putting time limits on your phone or letting your phone sleep in another room. Or you're going to have to take some proactive steps and not just be like, oh, yeah, I want to have a better relationship with social media and then you're scrolling twitter or tiktok for two hours every night and you just find yourself there and you're like oh i just feel so gross and it's like you had the power to not do that <laughs> well and to tie this into a question i was asking you at the very beginning of like this experience of a liminal age and feeling like we have a diminished capacity i listed emotional relational decision making and imagination hmm. and literally you just said well you actually need to exercise those to put limits on social media so it does not strip mine those things from you through your intention, engagement, and the economy and incentives that it sets up. Yeah. And so I was really hoping for a, an easier silver bullet, but that is actually extremely rational and makes sense. Here's an example of like, I really do, I promise, I've 
long throughout history not had a healthy relationship with social media and I don't delete tweets so the examples of that still exist trust me <laughs> okay especially like when I first became a professional I was working for Ed Stetzer running Ed Stetzer's blog at CT that was my first job out of college I was a fool on Twitter that Oof. was back when like you know people were fighting with each other all the time about theological things and I mean that still happens but like you know it was when like Jonathan Merritt and Rachel Held Evans were fighting with TGC all the time. It was 2013, 2014. And I would just hop in and like yell at them on Twitter as if I was somebody as a 22 year old, you know, recent college graduate or whatever. And so I've had my share of foolishness on social media, but like an example of what I'm talking about, you know, I'm publishing this book. I'm trying to be a very good author. For goodness sakes, I'm posting Instagram reels almost every day. That's how good of an author I'm trying to be. Okay. <laughs> I hate myself for it. Not, not really, but like it's soul sucking. I don't like doing it. But later this summer or early in the fall, I have every intention of, unless somebody convinces me otherwise, getting out of social media entirely. By that, I mean, I'm not going to like delete all my accounts, but I'm going to make my wife change my passwords, not give them to me. I will be dark for an undefined period of time. You know, maybe starting around like Labor Day is like what I mentally have in my mind. It might be earlier, it might be later, but that's kind of what I have in mind. And I have no idea when I will come back. I think I might even stop writing my weekly newsletter for a while, at least like maybe through the end of the year. And just like, I want to disappear. I talked about how I have sometimes wrestled with like, am I just doing this? Cause I want people to think about me. I want people to forget I exist. You know what I'm saying? Because I want to start writing fiction. I have like six ideas and I know I can do it. I know I can write. And I have some ideas I really want to pursue that like would be fun enough for me to write, even if, you know, because you don't get a contract for writing fiction until it's already done, you know, unless mm -hmm, you're mm -hmm. a seasoned successful writer. Like if you're like me and you're trying to break in, you have to write a full manuscript before anybody will look at it. Yeah. And so I've got three or four projects that could be a hundred thousand words long that I've got to write. And I know that if I had access to Twitter or TikTok, I would never do that. Yeah. It would never happen. So I'm just like, forget it. I want to erase myself functionally, not totally, but functionally and, and not engage with any of those things for a period of months, if not longer, so that I can actually do these things I want to do. But the normal person wouldn't do that. They'd just be like, oh, I want to do this thing and not change anything. And so I think that's just an aspirational example for me of if you want to do something like this, like have a creative aspiration or whatever, you just have to like make yourself do it. It's not just going to happen. Yeah. I had one more question I was going to ask you, which was, you know, what advice would you have for leaders? But I think you just answered it in a different way, which is there's a real sense that we've got to lead ourselves first in this. Oh, yeah. And encourage our people that one of the ways that we are hospitable to our neighbors and welcome people in is to have something worth welcoming them into first. And I, the importance of that anchor in a liminal age is just, I, I can't overstate it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Like you said, I kind of answered it, but like the advice I would give for leaders is a, yeah, you got to get yourself together a little bit here. Like it's going to be really hard for you to lead your community group or your church, or if you're a parent, your kids toward a healthy relationship with social media. If you don't have one mm -hmm. telling your kid, put their phone down at the dinner table as you're constantly scrolling at the dinner table is going to be a little hard. So <clears throat> like <clears throat> now, now, <clears throat> Gonna need to add that part out. Uh. Yeah, right. <laughs> I actually say this in the book, and I think this is really important. Don't feel like you have to have a perfect relationship. You don't clean yourself up before you come worship God. In the same mm -hmm. way, 
don't feel like you got to have all your ducks in a row before you can lead your kids or your congregation to have a good relationship. Like just admit where you are weak. Yeah. You know, say like, I run my mouth on Twitter too much, but I'm trying to get better at it. And I want you all to get better at, you know, whatever. Just be honest with where you're weak and try to be less weak, but don't be trying to like lead your community group to have a better relationship with social media. If you're famous for being mean to people in the comment sections of local news, Facebook posts or something like that. Okay. So like, that's one thing. And I say that throughout is like, you check yourself before you try to lead people. Secondly, I think you got to be gracious here. Hmm. I think it's really important. This is another one of the common things that I talk with people about and something I get emails about, especially in the last couple of months is like, I'm an associate pastor and I know my lead pastor isn't doing this well. How do I talk to that person about it? Or I'm a pastor and I can think of a dozen people in my church who could really use some, some hard leadership here. What do I do? You subtweet them, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. yeah. You, you print off all their tweets, call them in for a meeting, <laughs> hold them up and say, what is this? You jerk. <laughs> but like, really people get hyper defensive about this stuff super quickly. Mm. And that's part mm-hmm. of the evidence of unhealth. But mm. I think, if I were a vocational pastor, I could see myself being a little bit like a bull in a china shop here and, and mm. kind of belligerent. But you got to think, I want to show this person very directly how they're being a jerk on social media and call them out on it. But you got to step back from that desire and that isn't necessarily wrong and say, is that the most effective way to approach the situation? How can I most effectively mm. address this person's unhealthy relationship? And really, I think that's most commonly done through gracious long period conversations about these things because it's such a deeply rooted idol and like golden calf for folks that if you just go in and swing in your hammer to smash the golden calf, people are going to leave your church before they're going to change, frankly. And you could say, fine, good riddance, but then they're just going to go have that same problem somewhere else. And you just kind of pass that problem on to another pastor perhaps. So I think trying to lead with kindness is huge. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're at least saying literally whatever you would do on Twitter, do the opposite in person. Yeah. Right? Right, like, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because that's how we are being conditioned to expect relationship and define community. It, it strikes me how much that is both hard, but also a glaringly obvious countercultural opportunity. How much louder does the kindness scream mm-hmm. when you refuse yeah, to allow the algorithmic liturgy to shape the way that you relate to people? Right. Like, that's exactly. incredible. And ultimately, like, people need to know that you're coming to them in this situation because you – I mean, this is just like addressing any sin that you see in, in someone yeah. you're leading. They have to know that you're coming to them out of love and not out of, like, a spirit of just calling them out. You know, like, that's what you're doing. But, like, ultimately, you're doing it because you care about them and you want what's yeah. best for them and yeah. their families. And I think in this particular situation, because it can just be such a deeply rooted idol that people are, like, maybe even, depending on where they're at, are even, like, already kind of latently ashamed about that you just got to lead with grace and like kindness and love and just like wear that on your sleeve because the conversation is going to be hard enough in and of itself. I think this is true in a lot of situations, but as much in this situation as anything else, like just be kind, be gracious and recognize that this person may deep down recognize their deep brokenness here, even if they act like they're in the right and get super defensive. Awesome. Well, Chris, this has been equal parts validating and convicting. And once again, everybody listening to the should buy his book, The Wolf in Their Pockets, 13 Ways the Social Internet Threatens the People You Lead. 
Thank you for being a blunt and honest sheepdog to counterbalance that wolf here. Your heart and care for the sheep is very evident. And as someone who got a chance to read your book even before it came out, I just want to say like, it is a breath of fresh air how practical your suggestions are. It is really easy to complain about and bemoan social media's ills. And like, I am literally the best at that, but it is a breath of fresh air, the the optimism coming through your book. So thank you, man, for writing such a great book. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Cool. All right, well, we'll have back on soon. Thanks, man. Sure, thank you. So great conversation with Chris, super helpful. I'm glad that we got to hear about his book and just get his take on a lot of things. We want to be asking the question though, so what? What's our takeaway from this? What can we take into this world? And I'm curious, Brad, what was your so what? Yeah, well, my biggest so what is wishing we had had this conversation before a certain sermon I preached in James recently, (laughs) because when he was talking about how Gosh, uh, social media strip mines our desires and points us to things that deepen our desires and our passions instead of giving us a survey or a broad diversity or selection of different things. It's not going to stretch us. It's going to deepen us in whatever trajectory or direction we're going. And man, as soon as he said that, I had flash in my brain, James chapter 4 verses one through three, where James is saying, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I mean, social media is this undiscipling machine. Hmm. It is actually accentuating the very problem James is talking about, by drawing out your desires and then reshaping and reforming your sense of self around them. You no longer just have desires, you are your desires. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, what that does is it transforms and deforms our hearts. Anytime we consider either from our own volition, like that happens anymore, or somebody is asking us to constrain our desires or have them go unmet, It's no longer a threat to our desires. It's a threat to our identity, to our dignity, value, and worth. And that way of deforming us, I just, I mean, I just had light bulbs going off. So all this to say, the so what is, what I appreciate about where Chris was going with this is it's helping me reframe and re-understand part of what it looks like to shape and form people and to be shaped and form myself in a social media age, right? Because it's not, giving our people a handhold for these kinds of things to understand like that's actually what's happening, even if we're not intentionally opting into it, but the incentives are drawing us into it. It's only being able to remap that and rethink our participation that we're able to do something differently, man. Anyway, it just gave a lot of texture and I think kind of landscape to the challenge that we're trying to talk about that can, understandably become very, very high conceptual in the clouds. And so like, that was just a, a rubber hits the road moment for me. What about you, man? Yeah. Well, so as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking like, you're talking a little bit about the heart. And I think my takeaway is equally about the head. Mm. And here's what I mean by that. I think social media is like a default way that people come to intake 
information and learn about what's going on in the world and what ideas in there. It's like a default for most people epistemologically. How do we know what we know? Well, we know it through social media. We click on articles that we see in social media and we see hot takes on things and we hear speakers that are talking about things that we like to talk about and memes that are shared. So it's our default way for knowing the world. And so we look at social media and we go, what's going on in the world? Well, social media tells me what's going on in the world. But not only that, sometimes the things that are going on in the world are good and sometimes they're bad, but there's also a way that we decide through social media, what's the weight of this thing that's going on in the world? In other words, how pervasive is it? If it's something that's bad, we sort of make a judgment call based on how pervasive it is, or if it's good, how pervasive it is based Mm. on how many times it's shared or how many times it pops up. And then we make a decision, well, what's my responsibility to participate in what's going on in the world. So, I mean, I made this joke about, you know, the cow situation and the abscesses and like all of a sudden, you know, from my feed, you would think that this is a huge problem that we need to do something about. And like, I've got to start an organization to help all these cows. Now, I mean, that's funny, but think about that when we start to talk about issues of issues of politics, even, even issues of justice and issues of brokenness in the world. I'm asking the question, how do I know what's real from what social media tells me? How do I really know that that's going on in the world, number one? Mm. And then how do I know the pervasiveness? I don't think social media is a good good litmus test to answer those questions. I think we need other handholds for what reality actually is. I'm not sure what those things are. This just brings up more questions for me. But it makes me kind of thankful. It makes me thankful for Jesus. And here's why. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there is a sense that social media is so ambiguous, but Jesus is not. Though Mm. we don't see him, we know he's real. We know he exists. We know he loves us. And we know that he will give us the truth, even if at times we don't like it. Mm. And even though we don't like it, I feel like right now it's comforting to know that he is true. He's real. He will not deceive us. We know that he cares about us and we know that he's true. And for me, that's my takeaway. That's beautiful, man. Especially because when we think about social media, the attractiveness of it is this idea that we can write the narrative ourselves, right? Even though it's actually algorithmically determined, but it's just hidden by design. And that hiddenness is very different from the gospel narrative that Jesus invites us into. What is the narrative we're going to participate in? One that needs to be hidden so that you don't know what the story is. Exactly, exactly. Or one that is like, no, I'm I'm actually going to bring it to you. And there is nothing hidden here. Man, one of those is trustworthy. Yes. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for your reflections, Brad. Will I see you on Twitter later? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Great, great time talking. Yeah. See you, man. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.